We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Matthew. If you are just joining us or you're new to the faith, new to Christianity, it's a little bit confusing. Uh, The book isn't about a guy named Matthew. It's a book written by Matthew, and it's a biographical account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we're about 11 chapters through. That's not even halfway yet. So um, in one sense, you've missed a lot. In another, you're joining at the right time. We're just getting started. Um, Last week, we finished chapter 10. And here's a good summary statement of last week. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus has chosen the 12 disciples. He's getting a following and he tells them, trouble is on the way. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus doesn't promise his followers a life of luxury or ease. Rather, he tells them suffering is on the way, immense suffering. There's no sugarcoating going on here. And we sort of slightly joked around with this, although it's, it's not a joke, but it's it, sort of is. We talked about the three circles of Christian living, uh, because in the passage from last week, Jesus says, look, kings and governors are going to hate you. Uh, Your family members are going to hate you. And then he goes, and all individuals will hate you. And it's like just this this massive picture of just like everyone's going to be out to get you. Now, obviously, there's some rhetoric involved here. It's not as if um, Jesus is saying every single Christian will be hated by all people all the time. What he is saying, though, is he's giving us a picture. And the picture is one that says, um, if we could, Joe, if we can get some work on my mic, there's a little light feedback and some, what do they call those things? Sibilances type of thing? Is that what it is? Come on. Someone knows what I'm talking about. Thank you. Um, so the picture is, is not literally every single person is always going to hate you all the time. The image is God's kingdom is going to be resisted by the forces of evil at all costs. Every last power in hell will do everything it can to resist what God is up to in the world. So expect there to be problems, trials, and trouble. And chapter 10 gave us a picture of that. And now in chapter 11, Matthew is going to give us a concrete historical example of that taking place in the life of John the Baptist. And you're going to see what a good man, a great man like John the Baptist does when facing trial and circumstance. Matthew chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John's in prison. And it kind of pops up out of nowhere. We just get word that he's, he's in prison. And there's some qu- questions that arise, like, where is he at? Why did this happen? How is it happening? And we're not going to get into tons of details at this point, because later in this book, Matthew chapter 14, he's going to go into like a long extended account of John's imprisonment. But there are a few details that will help us along the way at this point. So first, why is he in prison? John the Baptist was speaking out against Herod Antipas. 
specifically about a marriage. See, Herod had married, it gets crazy, and when we get to it in chapter 14, you're going to see it's even crazier. Herod had went to Rome, and there he kind of captured the heart of his brother's wife, who's named Herodias. Now, Herodias sounds a lot like Herod. So you can see this this family is kind of crazy already. But essentially, Herod has married his brother's wife, and now they're back here in the Holy Land, and John is speaking out against this. He's saying this is unlawful marriage. This is a sinful marriage. And so follow this. John the Baptist is in prison for speaking out against the sexual ethic of the royal family. He's speaking out against the sexual ethic of those in powers, and he's in prison for it. That's the why. The where is a place called Machaerus, which is uh, translated as the Black Fortress. So it already kind of sounds Lord of the Rings-ish, right? Like there he was thrown deep in the dungeons of the Black Fortress. But that's actually what happened. This is the hill that the Black Fortress would sit upon. Uh, now it's there, there's nothing there, but you can co- sort of see this recreation of it. And so this is massive fortress on this hill, so it's protected in a, in a kind of from, from war and, and from invasion. And somewhere deep in the dungeons of that building, John the Baptist is sent. You could imagine what it was like. I mean, these these aren't like, this is a dungeon. You're not treated well. John was used to living his life out there in the wilderness, and now he's confined to a small, dark space and all kinds of horrible things probably occurring. So why is he there? Because he spoke out against Herod Antipas. Where? This location, deep in a dungeon. And from there, he sends his disciples, some of his followers, to ask questions to Jesus, who are roughly, by the way, 100 miles away. So it's not as if, like, hey, go talk to me and come back to me. This is a significant journey. There's immense implications. When John heard, while he's in prison, about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, this question kind of can throw us off because it's like, this is John the Baptist, right? Doesn't John the Baptist know who Jesus is? If you've been tracking with us, John the Baptist was at the baptism of Jesus. Why? Because he baptized Jesus. And there was this event where where the, the sky tears and you hear the Father's voice saying, this is my son. And so you're, you're sort of thinking like, what's wrong with this guy? He was there. He knows who Jesus is. Does he have like such tiny faith that he's going to doubt the second some bad things happen? And so there's potential to begin to see John in a bad light. But there's a lot more going on here. John is no weakling here. There's a lot more going on. And so let's review a little bit of the characteristics and situation that John the Baptist finds himself in because that'll help us understand what's really taking place in this passage. So go back to Matthew chapter 3 when we're introduced to this guy named John the Baptist. It says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. So John is the wild man, the wild man out in the desert. He has this garment made of of hair, and he's eating locusts. That's essentially grasshoppers. He's finding grasshoppers. Locusts are like communal social grasshoppers. They come in swarms. And he's eating them. Also, there's this hint because of the way he's dressed 
that he, he has an appearance sort of like Elijah the prophet from old. Remember, Elijah at one point in his life is out there in the desert, out there alone and God supernaturally providing food for him. But the description of Elijah says that he's a man dressed in like animal hair. So right now, John is depicted as the wild man who speaks truth out in the wilderness, and he's being mapped out upon this other prophet named Elijah. So when you think John, think prophet out in the wilderness who will say the truth at all costs, no matter what. Here's some of the things he says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you get a little kind of glimpse of how this guy, this dude doesn't mess around. Like, follow those words, right? They're harsh. And he's speaking them to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees basically are popular among the common people, so they control the common religious thought of the day. And then the Sadducees are in charge of the the temple institution. So it's like the two religious bodies that have power and authority and influence over the people and the temple, they come out to see John, and John is basically saying, you guys are wicked, evil men. And guess what? This line is awesome. Verse 10, now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Now picture, put that image in your mind. The axe is laid to the root. This isn't like, um, there's some pruning, there's some clippers, and God is going to prune the tree to bear more fruit. It's not even the axe is going to chop the tree down so a stump's remaining, so you can forever remember the tree that once stood there. The axe is going to strike at the roots of the tree. It's going to kill the tree. It's going to destroy it. You take it out so it can never grow back. That's the image John gives to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, just like you, is cut down and thrown into fire. That's heavy. This is John the Baptist. Some other words. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. As heavy, really heavy. John is saying the time of judgment is now. It's now. The axe is laid to the root, and you better watch out because I'm the forerunner. I'm preparing the way. The one who comes after me is mightier than I. I'm just putting the axe to the roots, so get ready. It's all about to go down. Let's go back. When John heard while he was in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and and they asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So why is John asking this? It's because John, John knows what his job was. He was to prepare the way. 
And he, he knows the Old Testament scriptures. He knows that there's a coming day of the Lord when the ax will be laid to the, to the root of the trees, when judgment is going to come, when God will finally stop evil, when God will vindicate his people. He knows the movie script, if you will. And it's not as if he's a, he's a bad a bad follower of God, like the Old Testament has all of these verses in it. It speaks of the coming day of wrath. It's coming. So John is preparing the way, and he's like on the precipice, like he's looking out. I'm the last line of all the prophets right before the Messiah comes. And I know this guy who I baptize is the Messiah Jesus. I'm here. I'm ready to watch it go down. And then what happens? He gets put in prison. He gets put in prison. And then it's like, okay, let me just wait a couple of days. Man, it's about to go down. It's about to go down. Then it's like a couple months later, it's about to go down. His expectation would be judgment is going to come. Herod Antipas is an evil, wicked king. God is going to strike him down. Messiah will then sit on the throne, take up his rightful place as the rightful heir, as the king of Israel, and rule and reign in a way that is righteous and true and reflects the glory and goodness of God. That's not a bad thing. That is not John being like morally weak or his faith is weak. He knows the scriptures and he thought Jesus was the one. But now what's he seen? That the axe was laid, but nothing's happening. So when you picture John, don't picture him as like some person weak of faith. It's precisely his faith in the God of Israel that's causing all of this confusion. Because he thought it was supposed to go down a certain way. And now it's kind of not happening that way. Which leads to sort of like a letdown, right? There's this buildup. It's all about to go down. The axe is laid. He's, he's got the winnowing fork in hand. The wheat will be separated from the chaff. And now you're in prison and God's people still suffer. Herod still sits on the throne. Rome is still in charge. And you begin to, to, to doubt you begin to, to be confused and worried. And it's like, what, what, what is going on? I thought the scripture said this, this, and this, but this is what's happening. And so John is probably in some type of wrestling like this. This is like, what is happening? And many of you have been there, right? Many of you might be there now where you're sort of in this letdown phase. You know, God, I, I thought you said this, this, and this. But then in my life, guess what happened? This, this, and this. And I can't seem to reconcile those two things. I expected you to do this, but then you didn't do what I expected. You know, it's a very difficult place to be. It's like, I, God, I thought I got it. I thought I understood. I thought if I did this, if I, if I obeyed and I looked at your word and this and that, and now look at what's going on in my life very difficult place to be. So Jesus answers John's disciples. He says, come here. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
See, what Jesus does is he starts pointing to his actions, his deeds. He says, tell them the blind see. Tell them about the lepers who are cleansed. Tell them about the gospel being proclaimed among the poor. Tell them about all of those things. Now, what Jesus is doing, he's not just saying, tell John there's miracles occurring. Jesus knows John knows the scriptures. And so just as John knew the scriptures and saw a coming day of wrath and judgment and the acts laid to the root, he also knows that in the Old Testament, especially and particularly the book of Isaiah, there's also verses that talk about what the messianic age will look like, when the one who is to come finally comes. And there's these verses that talk about the blind receiving their sight, which is a miracle not performed in the Old Testament. It's this new type of messianic age miracle, miracle of the Messiah. That the leper is made whole and well and clean. Tell them that. Tell them about the little girl who was dead and was raised to life. Tell them about the woman with the issue of bleeding, how she was made whole and she was brought into the family of God. You go tell them those things. And in doing so, John knows there's these scriptures. No, no, that's what the Messiah would do. And this is, this is like a, a bonus thing. What's very interesting about the verses that speak of the Messiah in those ways in the book of Isaiah, oftentimes it goes back and forth from speaking of it as if the Messiah is doing that. And then sometimes it appears as if God himself is the one giving sight to the blind. It's as if to say this servant, this Messiah figure is something more than a man, more than a prophet. And so Jesus says, go tell him. Go tell him about all these things. He'll know. He'll know. This is, this is exactly going to plan, but it's just happening in a way that you might not have expected. Because there's an expectation that things would go down in a certain manner. And Jesus is saying, go tell him about the miracles. Things are actually going exactly to plan. Just maybe not the way you, th- in the order you thought they would have occurred. You know, it's been said that um, bad or faulty expectations can ruin a marriage. False and faulty expectations projected upon Almighty God can wreak havoc on your faith. He is an infinite being who doesn't always fit nicely and neatly into our expectations of how he ought to act and behave. This last line is so good. Verse 6, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. If every Christian today could hear that verse and let it penetrate their heart and their soul, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Remember in in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had the Beatitudes, blessed are the the poor, blessed are the, the gentle, blessed are the persecuted. It's almost as if this is one that comes late. Blessed is the person who is not offended by Jesus. I mean, seriously, from a, like a sermon point, that could be the end of it. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Jesus. He goes on. And they went away, the disciples of John, and then Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. It's like, what, you, you went out there, what did you expect to see? A prophet? No, John's more than a prophet, which is a very interesting kind of cryptic way of Jesus hinting at something. 
If John is more than a prophet, who is the one that John prepares the way for? See, it's kind of mysterious. But he's telling the people, what did you expect? When you went out there to see John, did you expect to see a reed shaken by the wind? The, the image of the reed uh, shaken by the wind is something that's used in the Old Testament, also what we call the intertestamental period, the roughly 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. And that image is pretty much used to, to communicate weakness, either physical weakness and or a type of moral weakness where uh, the wind blows the reed and you change your opinions or your thoughts on certain ethic or ethics or moral teachings. So it's someone who's fickle and, and likely to change their opinion. It's someone who's physically weak. And so Jesus goes, you went out to see John. Did you expect to see some weak man in the wilderness who wouldn't speak truth? No, no, no. Did you go out there to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Because the soft clothing is wore for people in king's houses. That's the stuff of royalty. Not John. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't fear men. He fears God. Now, that's powerful enough like to back up John the Baptist, but there may be something more going on here. So this is a coin uh, that was made, started being put into circulation in roughly 20 AD uh, in, this, in this geographical location. And uh, so it means by the time we're reading this story, the, the time of the events of this story, this coin is in circulation. And it's a coin that Herod made and he minted. And on Herod's coin is an image of the reed. Image of the reed. And so the image of the reed out there kind of in the waters blowing in the wind also serves as a sort of symbol or emblem for Herod Antipas. And so what Jesus may be doing is sort of boosting up John, but also taking a slight jab at Herod and the royal house. He's going, you went out there and what did you want? Did you want a weak person? Did you want someone who has no moral backbone like Herod? You got there, you wanted to go see the reed. Changes his mind every day. No, that's not how prophets are. They don't sit there in the royal house live, live in the life of ease, comfort, luxury. They're out in the wilderness proclaiming God's truth. So it's, it's a very cool, subtle thing. And I think there's something going on there because Jesus, remember, he talked about soft clothing that the, the royal houses wear. There's probably something more going on here. Okay, let's keep going. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, fair warning. There's two more slides with verses on it. And every verse in these two slides is very difficult to interpret, and there's a, like debate and dialogue about the proper interpretation on which way to go, but so that's the bad news. The good news is, is that like in the majority of the cases, no matter which route you take, the kind of big picture conclusion is pretty much the same, and you'll see this as we walk through, but I wanted to give you that fair warning because it's like some of this stuff's gonna, it's gonna sound weird. First one, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. No one's better than John the Baptist. Of all the people who have ever been born of a woman, no one's better. But I'm going to tell you this. If you, if you are of the kingdom of heaven, you're greater than him. So Jesus is initiating his kingdom. He's inaugurating it. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are now a part of the church and the kingdom life. So Jesus is saying that like, it's like, one of you greater than John the Baptist? Like on an intuitive level, most of you are going, nah, I'm not, no ways, I'm not even close to John the Baptist, right? I'm not even close. Maybe, you know, I could, I could throw comp with the majority of the pastors at this church, but no, you know, I'm nowhere near as good as like John the Baptist, right? So what's going on? Likely, likely, <clears throat> what's, what Jesus is saying is that something new is being initiated and just being a part of what God is bringing to bear into the world puts you in a completely different category than John. He is not saying, like, you are more devout than John the Baptist. Like, you are more faithful than John the Baptist. John's the greatest man to ever live it to this point. But he says, of those born of women. What did John say Jesus would do? What does the New Testament claim that Jesus is doing? That Jesus is making people born again. He's making them born in the Spirit. John says, I baptize you with water, but there's one who's coming to baptize you with fire and spirit. And so the New Testament believer is in categorically something different than the Old Testament followers of the God of Israel. And it's not to say that John the Baptist is bad or like, it's talking about what we have. The New Testament believer in Jesus has things like knowledge of the cross of Christ that the Old Testament saints were not aware of. You have his Holy Spirit given to you. The Spirit seals you, which is a guarantee of the inheritance, Ephesians 1. And so there are things that just merely being a part of the church life grants you that sets you in a different category than an Old Testament saint. So don't think you're like more faithful or more devout than John the Baptist, but understand this is a big deal. And remember, John the Baptist has taken us there. He's got us all the way there, and he's standing on the edge, and he set the way up and prepared it for the Messiah. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, we're going to cover this briefly because there's, again, so much dialogue and debate go, goes on exactly what this, what this means. What I think, and you can do your own research on the side, but what I think is Jesus is saying is since John till now, the kingdom, God's mission has been under attack. Look at the evidence. John is in prison. Herod's on the throne. Do you remember how the Christmas story started? <laughs> Herod trying to kill any, anybody who might be a threat to his throne. So there's this violence taking place, this suffering taking place, and John is the latest example, but make no mistake about it. All the prophets and the law, so that's the entire Old Testament, the Torah, the writings, the prophets, they are all leading us up to this one point, this one point that John is now the, the last person in line of this long list of people taking us to this point. 
And if you have ears to hear, he is the Elijah to come. Another weird thing. It's like, where did that get thrown in? Oh, and if you have ears to hear, you know, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. Background information. If you go to the last page in your Bible in the Old Testament, the way our Old Testament books are ordered is Malachi. You'd see this section at the very end. And in Malachi chapter 4, there's a description of God's judgment, the day of the Lord. And it talks about his justice finally coming down. And you better be ready for it because he has, he's, he's the one who, who's going to take you to the refiner's fire. And you get this image of judgment and God vindicating his people. And then it ends with this. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the Old Testament sort of ends with this anticipation that Elijah is going to come. Now, why Elijah? A number of reasons. Elijah is emblematic of the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament. Two, are you familiar with his death? He kind of has this unique death. There's another prophet by the name of Enoch that has something similar, but he gets taken up in this chariot of, of fire. And so there's this idea in the Old Testament tradition that because he didn't die like the proper death, it's because God is preserving him and he's going to come back right before the day of the Lord. And he is going to speak. Now, this isn't like reincarnation or anything like that. They really think that Elijah was going to come back. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 you're not understanding this. It's not as if the actual Elijah was going to come back, but someone like Elijah in the same spirit and power and vocation is going to return to prepare you for the coming of Messiah. And Jesus goes, if you really want to understand how this works, that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist takes us to the edge of the precipice, the last in the long line of Old Testament prophets leading up to Messiah Jesus. And you can see this in a number of ways. Like John and Elijah, if you were to make similarities between them, you'd have a list of like 15 different things, but here's a few. They both at some point in their lives are out in the wilderness. Why? Be because they're being persecuted uh, by kings, by, by those in charge, and they're both provided for with food in the desert. They also, as we mentioned before, had a similar look. They were clothed with camel hair. Elijah's just said it's, it's, a, it's a garment of hair, and John, you get the description, it's camel hair. So you can map upon the characteristics and attributes and vocation of John the Baptist and Elijah, and they kind of overlap. And Jesus saying, that's it, John's the guy. Which is him saying, also, not only that John's the guy, but Jesus is saying, I'm the guy. Everything has been leading to me. It's all about to go down. And then the section ends. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like the children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. 
The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Told you it was kind of weird. Like, what does, any, what does any of that mean? It's kids in a marketplace. Some of them are playing this game with the flute. Some of them are playing a game. They're pretending to do a funeral. That's what the, this kind of, the, the, the dirge is played at when people are mourning. So this first part, Jesus says, what is this generation like? And he gives us a picture. So we need to start imagining that in our head. What is the generation like that Jesus is preaching to? He takes us to a marketplace, and the marketplace is likely where children would have been playing around at this time period. They'd have been messing around, playing games. And he says there's, there's some children who are playing a game where they play a flute. This is like a celebration game. And he says, the children say, but you didn't, you didn't dance with us when we played the flute. And so they played a different game. They played this, this game where you're maybe at a funeral doing the, playing the, singing, singing the dirge. And you didn't mourn then. And so the children are sort of like mad because no one's, no one's playing the game. They played it this way and they played it that way. And then they're kind of going, what's up? No one wants to play with us. Another, another way of looking at this, which is a possible interpretation, is that Jesus and John are the two children so John plays the mourning game with the dirge. He pronounces sadness and judgment. And then Jesus comes along and plays the flute, the celebration game, and no one wants to play with them. Now, no matter what road you take, the outcome is still, still the same. Jesus is saying that this generation is not satisfied or contempt with both ends of the spectrum. And you know this because look at what he says in verse 18. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he's got a demon. John doesn't eat or drink. He lives out there in the wilderness. And the people are like, oh, he's got a demon. Then the Son of Man, Jesus came. He didn't go out in the desert. He, he ate and drank, and he had fellowship with sinners. And what do they say? He's a glutton and a drunkard. So you see this. Jesus saying this generation is full of malcontents who critique, criticize, and reject anything that's thrown at them. You, you go live this holy, righteous life in the desert, this ascetic life, where you're living off locusts and honey? Oh, demon. You come and, and you, you extend grace and forgiveness to tax collectors and sinners? Ah, he's just a drunkard and a, a glutton. The generation is ungrateful. They're malcontents. They critique and dismiss everything. They're not going to be happy. See, there's an appearance of, we want truth. Give us the truth. But Jesus is like, you don't want the truth. We say this and it's rejected. We go over here, we do it this way, it's rejected. Now, man, Jesus is speaking to that generation. But I know, I know another generation he's speaking to. You pretend as if you want truth. You don't want truth. You just want someone to say something so you can hate on it. Everything is negative, critical, grouchiness, ungratefulness. I mean, this generation, for the rest of your life, just every time you walk into a grocery store, seriously, thank you, Jesus. I am so blessed and privileged to live at a time to, to see this. That's more, than what, that's more than what people pictured the promised land to be like than when they were wandering around in the desert. And so Jesus, like this generation, 
You do it John's way, they'll hate you. You do it the other, they're going to hate you. That's what this generation is like. And I suspect Jesus wasn't just speaking about one particular generation in human history. Okay, now let's look at the big picture. What do we do with all of this? John is a good man. Jesus isn't looking down upon John. John has been so faithful, he's found himself in prison. But it's likely that things maybe just aren't going down exactly the way he thought they would. And Jesus doesn't knock him for that. What did Jesus tell the crowds? Up until this point, no one's been as great of a man as John the Baptist. He's not knocking him. But then he slightly, he begins to gently correct him, right? He says, wisdom is justified by her works. Look at, look at what's going on, John. Look at what's going on. The blind receive sight. Those who cannot walk are getting up and walking. The unclean are being made clean. Put the pieces together, John. And so Jesus corrects and gently gets John on the right track. But John is a good man, but he's experiencing significant doubt because things are not going the way he thought. His expectations are not being met, and that gets us back to what we refer to as the letdown. You know, John doesn't know what's ahead of him. He has no, I mean, ancient times were brutal. He could face a horrific and brutal death. And by the way, if you know the story, John does face death. So he's in this prison trying to figure it out, saying, God, I thought this would happen. I thought it would go down like this, but it doesn't appear to be working out. I thought if ABC happened, then XYZ would happen. And at this point, John, the righteous man, the greatest man of the Old Testament, connects with us and resonates deep in our soul. Because some of you have been there and some of you are here. You know what I mean? It's like, Lord, I thought it would go down like this. And I trusted you. I loved you. I did everything I was supposed to. I went to church and then still these things just happened. And I thought it would go down like this, but it didn't. And it can happen in a billion ways, right? Your, your life is going along and then the freight train hits you and takes you out. Your spouse leaves you. You pray for your mom's cancer again and again and again, but to no avail. Your children walk away from faith. You're going, Lord, I, I did my best. I thought this was hot. Like, what's going on here? I can't put it together. And it's a very similar place to where John is at, and there's this, this letdown that's going on, and it can be overwhelming. And even if it's just not like on a personal level, sometimes you could look at things that have happened to you like intimately, but then just like the global picture, you begin to go like, like John, I thought you were the one to eradicate evil, to bring about justice, to take out the bad guys. But John's still in prison, and then you look out around at the world and it's like evil after evil after evil, bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. It's like we came out of, first off, two years of COVID chaos. And then what does it go into? News of a war. And there's, it's superpowers involved. And, and it's, you hear worry and doubt and anxiety about World War III and the coming catastrophe and coming food shortages. And then, and then you, you, you kind of shrink it down and there's just tragedy after tragedy from Buffalo to Uvalde to think about tomorrow. Tomorrow, 
and I'm using this word, and then I'm going to backtrack, we celebrate Memorial Day. But that, that's like incongruent, right? Because what are we talking about on that day? Men and women who lost their lives in war. And so you could just look at your own personal life or kind of the global picture, just see what's on the news. It's like one thing after another, and you can begin to feel like John in that prison. You know what I mean? Are are you the one? I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief, but are you the one? And look at Jesus' response. Because we shouldn't give any other response to these issues than Jesus gives, right? He says, look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. Wisdom is justified by her works. And so for John, he's told to look at what's going on. In the midst of evil and suffering and heartache and brokenness, you look at the works of the Messiah. You look at what Jesus is doing in the middle of human suffering. And then you also have to understand that John, in his life, will not get to see the completion of his mission. Because one of the difficult things is that, and this isn't a bad thing in and of itself, but we can become so individualistic that we expect God to provide the answer to our prayers when we could, you know, when we could participate in it. John didn't get to. John died in prison, which should take you back to to other people in the Bible, right, who were like guides that got you to the edge, but they themselves did not get to go in. It's like someone who takes you to the treasure but doesn't get any for their own. Remember Moses? Worked with Israel all those years, and he doesn't, get into go, he doesn't get to go into the promised land. But he sees something much bigger. He goes, even if my eyes do not stay around, I do not live long enough to see God's faithfulness, nevertheless, I will trust him that he will be faithful even if I'm not around to see it. So it's a very powerful thing. When Abraham trusted Isaac, trusted God for Isaac, he had no idea, no clue that many years later that through that line, the Messiah would come. There's something more important than all of this, is Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her works. And at that time, Jesus points to these miracles. But we are New Testament believers, And we exist in this like different category. And we have access to something that John did not have access to. Namely, the knowledge of the cross of Christ. That's what we know. And this is significant for for many reasons. First, it's not as if God just looks down below and sees human suffering and goes, "I I don't want to get my hands into that. God comes into that and bears the full weight of human suffering in himself. He knows what it's like to be abandoned and the outcast, and rejected, and die a horrific, cursed man's death. So he knows all that, and he is able to relate. He takes upon himself the full weight of the human experience. But on top of that, what is the cross doing? 
Because remember, we're talking about God himself dying on a cross. Like, why did that have to happen? And this is something that many people miss and that we, get, we're, we miss so easily. In wanting justice to come down, for God to destroy all of his enemies, we can often miss the fact that the evil and the injustice isn't just out there, right? It's in here. So, it's not just that there was a few bad guys that God needed to take out in the Old Testament. It was the whole world was in need of forgiveness. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Gentiles, Israel, even John the Baptist himself needed the cross of Christ because the evil wasn't just out there, it was in here. And so, what are the Scriptures teaching us? That God is just. There will come a day when he says enough, and evil will be eradicated. He will destroy it completely, entirely. Every wrong will be righted. Everything will be made right, everything made new. But God is also so loving, so gracious, and so merciful that he dies on a cross in order to provide a way before that coming day that all who would accept his grace and mercy might have an opportunity to receive it. And let me tell you, you better thank God He didn't do things according to your expectations because the cross of Christ would have never have happened and you would not have been saved because while you were an enemy of Christ, he died for you. And so the cross is what we look to. Wisdom is justified by her works. We look to a crucified Messiah who suffers in our place in order that we might have an opportunity afforded to us of grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and to receive that and to know him and to love him. But we also know there comes a day when justice occurs. But God is patient and waiting so that everyone who might come to repentance comes to repentance. And thank God for that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have made the cut. And so as we look at this, the takeaways, trust Jesus His faithfulness will be proven to you in your life or your kid's life or on the last day. Two, be careful to look at all the scriptures so you're not just gravitating to things that resonate with your personality. You know, I like all this judgment stuff. Get away with this mercy stuff, not realizing that that judgment stuff is written about you, bro. And so you need the grace and mercy stuff. And then lastly, When you feel like you're alone and abandoned and life hits you like the freight train, you look to the cross of Christ where God demonstrates his faithfulness to an unfaithful people. He's faithful to the very end in order to provide a way for you. Let's stand as we take communion.